After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That would be the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. After this, after what? Well, in chapter 20, we had the story of the resurrection, where Jesus appeared to Mary, and then he appeared to the disciples in the upper room. After that, now they're back in Galilee, because Jesus, as you know, was crucified and rose in Jerusalem, which is to the south of Galilee, with Samaria in between. And as we read this morning in Matthew 28, Jesus told uh, Mary and told the other women, tell the disciples, I'm going to meet them in Galilee. So they're back in Galilee now by the Sea of Tiberias. And we have here Peter, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel. In the book of John, we have this guy, Nathaniel. He's not in any of the other Gospels. We also do not in the Gospel of John have Bartholomew, who is in the other Gospels. Bartholomew is a surname. It's a last name. Bar means son. So it's believed by many, and I don't see any reason to disbelieve it, that Nathaniel and Bartholomew are in fact the same person. That Bartholomew was his last name and Nathaniel was his first name. If that's not true, it does not affect how we interpret the story one lick. The sons of Zebedee, who were James and John, and then two others. I kind of find it kind of funny that they are not named. And, you know, two more. And they're like, hey, I would have liked to be in this story, you know. <laughs> They've already seen Jesus alive. But it seems that they have not yet grasped the full significance of what the resurrection means, nor did they fully understand what they were to do next. It'd be very easy to say, well, they should have known because Jesus told them. And yes, but as we know, as we are, the disciples were slow to pick up on it sometimes. So Peter suggests they go fishing. And as the first time we saw Peter fishing, they don't catch anything. Back in Luke chapter 5, the beginning stories of the Gospels, we come across the disciples fishing and not catching anything. And once again, we have a repeat of that story. I've heard several sermons preached where Peter gets taken to task for fishing here. I don't know if that's necessarily warranted, that Peter was doing something wrong here by going fishing. He obviously wasn't very good at it, so maybe he should have learned his lesson by now. But the story does illustrate an important lesson. So as I make this point, I don't want to necessarily imply that Peter was sinning by doing this, but it does, it, it does teach us a lesson, I think. What was the last interaction Peter had had with Jesus? Well, he had seen him after his resurrection, but that was in the group. What about before that? If you flip over to the left, not too far, in Matthew chapter 26, this is after Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, when the soldiers came, Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus with a kiss. The soldiers came and arrested Jesus. All the disciples fled, except for, we know from the stories, John and Peter. Now, John's family, the Zebedee family, was kind of wealthy, so John was able to sneak Peter into the house of the high priest where Jesus was being tried. It was a kangaroo court. It was a total unlawful trial, but there it was. And Peter, it says in verse 69 of Matthew 26, was sitting outside in the courtyard. Inside the house, Jesus is on trial. And a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. 
And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, meaning he cussed her out. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Galileans were backwoods people. They didn't speak proper Aramaic or maybe Greek like they did in Jerusalem. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Another scripture tells us that at that point, Jesus heard the rooster and turned from where he was in the house and looked and met Peter's eyes. Peter had been swearing up and down during the Last Supper. I will never deny. I'll die for you, Jesus. And there's Jesus on trial going to be put to death. Peter had his chance and instead he swore, I don't even know who that is. On top of everything else, on top of Jesus being crucified, he was abandoned by all of his friends. John was there too, but John didn't say anything. John just let it happen. So it could be, and I think likely, that Peter felt himself unworthy to be a disciple. Because was he worthy to be a disciple? No, he wasn't. He was unworthy. He had denied Jesus three times. And he returned to fishing, and it could be that in Peter's heart was the thought, well, I've always got this. I know I was supposed to be you know, Jesus is rock, right? I was supposed to be Peter, but let's be real. I'm just Simon. I know Jesus is alive. That's wonderful, but there's no way he's, he's letting me back after what I did. So let's go fishing. Let's see if I've still got it. He didn't. Doesn't seem like he ever did. There are few things that are harder to bear than the shame of sin. There's kind of a cultural war being declared on shame. Have you noticed that? That anything that is, if you criticize anybody or try to correct anybody, you're immediately accused of shaming them. But what do you do when what you have done is shameful? What do you do if it's not just, as people will say, cultural bias, or it's not just you being a jerk, but what you've done is shameful and you ought to be ashamed of yourself? It's very hard to bear that. When there are memories that only you know about, when there are failures that come back to haunt you at night, and even though you've moved on and everything seems to be great, you still can't ever forget what you did. These things can be a fly in the ointment of an otherwise happy life. When everything is going well, and even though you've recovered and you've done better and you've moved on from it, it's still there haunting you and shaming you. And you still, to this day, break into a cold sweat when you think of anybody finding out. If my husband only ever knew what I did, if my children only ever knew, if the people in this church ever found out what I've done, they would never let me back in here again. That shame. There are some, and I believe there are some even in this room, who believe in Jesus. You believe that Jesus was the Son of God. You believe He died on the cross. You believe He rose again and that He offers forgiveness. But your weight of guilt and shame is so heavy, you refuse to come because you're embarrassed and you think there's no way Jesus could love a sinner like me. But what happened to Peter, though? Peter goes out to try to fish, but did he catch anything? He didn't. 
And this is the thing that we have to know. When you try to live a fulfilled life without Christ, you're going to come up empty. It's going to be unfruitful. It's going to be hard. All the color is going to be drained out of life because you know in the back of your mind there's still that thing to be reckoned with. And someday I'm going to die and face God and there's going to be no hiding anymore. And it makes us desperate. It makes us angry. It turns us into hard men and hard women. It turns us into the kind of person that wants to keep people away. I had a very dear friend who tried very hard to appear intimidating and scary and frightful. Yet when I, as I knew him and when I got to talk to him, he was just pathetic. He was scared. He had nothing going on in his life. But rather than face that, he wanted to keep people away. So he cultivated this image of being a scary person. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 63, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Have you ever felt that way? That life is just like a desert that you're slogging through and your soul is thirsty and you're looking for something to satisfy. Maybe you've tried a million different things and you're always chasing a new trend, but every time you come to the end of one, you think to yourself, there's nothing here either. I took a drink and it didn't satisfy me. What you're thirsty for is God. You're thirsty for Jesus. You're thirsty for forgiveness. But you might be thinking, I, I can't come there, though, because I've done too much. Well, I'm just here to tell you, you can toil all night, but if you don't have Christ, you're going to catch nothing. The psalmist said, if, unless the Lord builds the house, you labor in vain who build it. It's in vain you stay up late and work hard and try to build something for yourself. Unless the Lord's building it, you were meant for more. That's why. Peter wasn't to be a fisherman. Peter was to be a fisher of men. So he could never be satisfied with fishing anymore. He couldn't go back to the old way and have it work for him like it did because he had tasted something greater. And it's the same for some of you. Before you encountered Jesus, you were fine with your life. But once you met the Lord, once you heard the gospel, nothing else satisfies any longer. Partying doesn't do it for you anymore. Working hard doesn't do it for you anymore. Even your family, as much as you love them, don't fill that hole in your life. Maybe somebody passed away and you were forced to reckon with the fact of death for the first time. But what are we to do? You say, okay, yeah, I want that fixed, but I'm guilty. What am I supposed to do with all this legitimate guilt and shame? Should Peter have been ashamed? Yeah, you ought to have been ashamed, and so should you. Maybe that's even relieving for you to hear. Because you've been pretending that I shouldn't be ashamed of what I've done. I don't need to feel guilty. I've, everything I've done is fine. And everybody around you just claps and tells you you're brave and it's wonderful for doing that. But you hear me standing up here saying thing kind of mean that you ought to be ashamed of yourself and your soul just goes, thank you. You're right. What do we do about this? At least I'm not pretending anymore. But what am I supposed to do? Well, I'm going to tell you Jesus is going to show you this morning and somebody's going to get set free today. Is that exciting for you? Let's keep reading. So they go fishing. They catch nothing. Maybe you can relate to that. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. How many times in your life have you encountered the Lord and you had no idea it was him until afterwards? Jesus said to them in verse 5, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. Every man loves being asked that question when you haven't caught anything. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, I don't know how much you know about fishing, 
But if there's no fish on the left side of the boat, they're not going to be on the other side either. So they cast it because I said, whatever, we've been fishing all night. We might as well try it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. He was a little excited. Normally you take off your outer garment when you're going to go swimming. He was a little excited. Well, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Y'all, you're not as far from Jesus as you think you are. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. What did Jesus multiply when they didn't have any food that one time? The bread and the fish, right? Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard. He's like, go help him, Peter. <laughs> And hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. This is not the first time they've seen him alive. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the second time in the Gospels that Jesus appeared to the disciples after rising from the dead without telling them who he was. And both times, it's almost like he's messing with them. I love it. On the road to Emmaus, two of them were walking, and Jesus shows up, but he didn't let them know who he was. And he says, hey, fellas, what's got you so down? Oh, haven't you heard? Don't you know anything? And Jesus died. He goes, I don't know who's Jesus. I've never heard of Jesus before. And they tell him the story. And, and we, the ladies in our church said that he rose from the dead. But, I mean, that's, they're probably crazy, right? And he goes, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say that Messiah was supposed to rise from the dead? And he gives them this whole sermon. And then they say, well, you better come in for dinner. And he goes, oh, all right. And he goes, will you bless the food, mister? Oh, I sure will. And when he broke the bread and prayed for it, they realized, oh, that's Jesus. And the second they recognized him, Jesus vanished. Jesus was messing with them a little bit, I think. <laughs> Just the joy. You can feel the joy in these stories, can't you? Well, it's the same thing, right? Like, hey, have you caught anything, fellas? No. Try the other side of the boat. And then they caught all these fish, and Jesus is there making a campfire, cooking breakfast. 153 fish. That's the, only kind of, that's the kind of detail you only get from somebody who was there. Because if you're trying to invent a spiritual number, 153, right? <laughs> Immediately, John knew that it was Jesus. Why? Because Jesus had done this before. Back in Luke chapter 5, Jesus was using Peter's boat as a, as a pulpit. And then when they finished, it was the middle of the day, Peter's washing his nets, and Jesus says, hey, fishermen, let's go out fishing. He said, Wait, listen, tourist, it's the middle of the day. You don't fish in the middle of the day. I didn't catch anything last night. I'm definitely not catching anything today. But if you, at your word... I'll let down the nets. And you know the story, I'm sure. They brought in so many fish. The nets started breaking. The boat started to sink. So when this happened again, John recognized it. That's Jesus. Peter throws himself in the water. There's Jesus cooking fish, cooking bread. And they all had breakfast with Jesus on the beach. It is essential that you know this this morning. Jesus did not just rise in his spirit. 
Well, yeah, Jesus wrote, but it was his ghost. I mean, they saw his ghost and his spirit is alive. No, no, no. He's eating breakfast. Ghosts don't eat breakfast. Nor did he just rise as an idea. This is something that people will say. It doesn't matter if Jesus rose, as long as you believe that he's alive in your hearts. It absolutely matters that he rose. And if you don't, I'll just say this. If you do not believe that Jesus bodily rose from the dead, you're not really a Christian. That's the whole thing. That's the whole reason we have this. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So much for the idea that Jesus is a good story to provide some social glue. Paul says, if this isn't true, we're wasting our time. After his crucifixion, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he was truly buried. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took him down and washed his body and prepared it for burial. The two men who had been too afraid to acknowledge him while he was alive, sitting there washing his body, wrapping him up and placing him in the tomb. The tomb is sealed by that stone. The Pharisees and Sadducees pay for a Roman guard to be set up in front of it. And he spends the whole Sabbath day within the earth. But as had been prophesied, Jesus rose from the dead on that Sunday morning. The stone was rolled away. The guards fled. How would you like to be the angel given the assignment to go roll away the stone? He says his appearance was like lightning. I'll bet it was like lightning. He's like, I don't know if it was Gabriel or whoever. Like, Gabriel, yes, Lord. Go roll away the stone. Yes, sir. And down he goes, right? And those Roman soldiers, those brave, burly Roman soldiers passed out. It was an earthquake when that angel showed up, rolling that stone away. And Jesus came walking out of that tomb. What does this prove? It proves that Jesus is who he says he was. In John 10, 18, Jesus' manliest statement he ever says, the toughest, coolest thing ever. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. For I have the authority to lay it down and to take it back up again. For such authority I have received from my Father. So if you say, all right, how do we know Jesus is the Son of God? How do we know that he really came down from heaven? He says, how about this for proof? I'll die and then rise again. The sign of Jonah. Three days in the whale, three days in the earth. And then he'll come back out. What does this prove? It proves that sin has been paid for. We needed a sacrifice for sin. The whole old covenant was building to that. The Lord took thousands of years to teach his people. Sin deserves death, but a blood sacrifice will cover it. But as the book of Hebrews very honestly puts it, what is the blood of a sheep going to do? I'll hear people sometimes criticizing religion for this, right? Just kill a bunch of sheep. What's that going to do? It's like, oh, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Because nothing is the answer. You needed somebody, a, a human life for a human life. But what, hu I can't pay for your sins. I got my own problems to deal with over here. But Jesus came down, the perfect man. But listen, even if there was a perfect man, he could only pay for one more life. So God said, I'll send my son, God, very God, life from life, to become a man, take on a body, and die on the cross for sins. God poured out his wrath on Jesus. Everything your sin deserved was poured out on Jesus. And that was the penalty paid for sin. You may ask yourself, okay, how do we know that it worked? It's a great question. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
He came back to life. How Anybody that promises you eternal life who themselves dies and stays dead is not somebody you should listen to. But somebody who says, I'll give you victory over death and then demonstrates victory over death is the one you want to listen to. This was always the plan. The Lord is always planning to do this from the beginning. Even in the Old Testament, it was prophesied. David, in Psalm 1610, prophesied, You will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. And the son of David did, in fact, rise from the dead. Isaiah 53, verse 10. We know the, psalm, or the story of Isaiah 53. It's about the Lamb of God being sacrificed for sin. But the resurrection's in there, too. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. But when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Part of the lament of Isaiah 53 is that the servant of the Lord would have no progeny. He'd have no children, which is, of course, a tragic and shameful thing, especially in this culture. But he says he will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. How do you prolong the days of a dead man? You've got to bring him back to life. And now we all have become sons and daughters of God through faith. No one else has risen from the dead and stayed alive. Lazarus rose from the dead, but he died again. No one else can legitimately offer forgiveness and hope. doesn't matter who it is. The church exists as an institution to safeguard the testimony of the resurrection. How do we know that somebody rose from the dead? Well, how do you know anything from 2,000 years ago? People that saw it wrote it down. They didn't have pictures back then, in case you didn't know that. They didn't have video evidence. What do you have? Eyewitness testimony. Well, what, what happens when all the eyewitnesses start to die? We better write it down. And we better set up this church whose primary job, according to the book of Acts, was to bear witness. Witness of what? Witness that Jesus came back to life. And here I am, 2,000 years later, standing in the line of all those faithful witnesses, bearing the same witness to you, that Jesus rose from the dead. All of Peter's shame melted away when he saw Jesus. He did something that was kind of embarrassing. He puts on his jacket and then he jumps in the water. And doesn't your heart start to stir within you when you realize Jesus is alive? And if he's alive, maybe that means something for me too. If there's anybody who can help us, it's this man with his scarred hands and feet cooking fish on the shores of Galilee. What's Jesus going to do with Peter? Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I can imagine that even in his joy at seeing Jesus alive, which would just be irrepressible in Peter. He probably had a knot in his stomach as he sat there trying to avoid Jesus' gaze. You ever be in a group with somebody 
and you know that you and this person have something to talk about, so you try to stay in the group and not get alone. That's what Peter was doing. But Jesus turns to him, and perhaps this was private. John knew about it, but maybe Peter just testified later. But Jesus asks him three pointed questions. Do you love me? Why is the number three significant? How many times had Peter denied Jesus? Do you love me more than these? More than what? I would expect the other disciples here. Because what had Peter said in Matthew 26, the Last Supper? Jesus said, all of you are going to fall away because of me. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Because I love you more than these. Now, was Peter lying? I don't think so. But Peter vastly overestimated his own courage and his own spiritual strength. But here, all of Peter's boasts fly back in his face. Peter spoke out of turn quite a bit. It's what we love about Peter. It's what Jesus loved about Peter. Jesus needed somebody that wouldn't shut up when the world was telling him to shut up. So he chose Peter. But this needed to be brought into subjection to the righteousness of God. God is going to change you, yes, but in another sense, he's not. He wants to take all the best parts of you and redeem them for his glory. And this is what we have here. Perhaps even Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these? He's referring to the fish they just caught. He says, Peter, are you going to follow me or are you going to go back to these fish? In either case, it's a very intense moment for Peter. Maybe the first time he didn't quite get what was going on. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Maybe he put his arm around him, right? Oh, you know I love you, Jesus. And he receives a commission to feed Christ's sheep. Sheep, of course, is a symbol in the Bible of Christians, of God's people. We're compared to a flock of sheep. But twice more, he asks him this question. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard before that there is a variance of language here. We use the English word love. There's actually two Greek words behind this. That Jesus is asking him, do you agapao me? With that word agape, that unconditional Eternal Christian love, right? And Peter responds, I phileo you, which is just the usual word for love, brotherly love, right? And there are some that make a big deal out of the fact that the third time Jesus doesn't ask him, do you agape me, but do you phile me? And that that's why Peter was grieved. I don't know if that's so much what he's getting at here. It might be true. In any case, I'll let that study be on its own. I think the reason Peter was grieved is because the question is asked the third time. And he knew good and well why he was being asked a third time. I don't even know who that is. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I do, Lord. You know I do. And then that third time, it just gets even closer and closer to home. I mean, you got to imagine the tone of voice from Jesus here. Peter, do you love me? And he grieved. He grieved because he was forced to confront what he had done. Now, that morning was a joyful morning, and he had probably been able to forget some of the guilt he was feeling. But here Jesus comes and puts his finger right on the spot he doesn't want to talk about. It all erupted again. And this is the place you've got to come with God. A place of honest conversation. It's so easy to just have the wall up. And let's be fair. You, there are sometimes you need to have that wall up. Especially men. No, there are certain people that you can be absolutely open and honest and intimate with, and that doesn't need to be everybody. But God needs to be one of those people. 
more than even your wife or your children or your mother or father. To talk to God honestly. Some of us even pray, and we're not even praying honestly. We won't even openly pray the things that we want forgiveness for because we're too ashamed to talk to God. So we use all this religious speak to cover it up that sounds really good, but meanwhile Jesus is going, do you love me? No, I want to talk about this thing. Haven't you found that when you've got something unresolved in your heart and you try to pray or you try to come back to church or you try to worship or read your Bible, that's the one thing that Jesus pulls up and wants to talk about? Because he knows you too well. I'm not going to let you get away from that. We're going to talk about this, he says. You must face the truth about who you are. I can't sit here and blow sunshine and rainbows your way to make you feel like everything you've done is great and you're fine and you don't need any help. You're broken. You're sinful. You're a liar. You're a thief. You're an adulterer. You're a murderer. All those things. Until you come and renounce all of that and lay it on the altar and let the Lord burn it up, you're never going to get away from it. But if you can't even admit it, we go into the prison every week. And there are men there that they, they've been duly convicted by the judicial system and a jury of their peers, but they themselves won't even admit to what they know good and well they've done. And they'll fight with you and get angry with you about it. And some of us are just like that with Jesus. And it's just as ridiculous because everybody knows, and the Lord knows more than anything else, what you've done. This is what Peter did the first time Jesus gave him a big catch of fish. In Luke 5, 8, when Simon Peter saw that catch of fish, he'd been a big smart aleck to Jesus before this happened. He fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He goes, Jesus, you don't know who I am. I'm a sinful man. You should not be in my boat with me. You don't want to mess with me. You don't want to talk to me. My passage is too much. Go with Andrew. He's a good kid. James and John, they're good people. But you got to leave me here. Maybe some of you feel that way. Lord, my wife deserves all your grace. And God, these kids, raise them up. But you, you know what's up with me. I'm going to stay at a distance. You're here today because the Lord is telling you he wants you to. He wants you. He's not after you for your family's sake. He's after you for you. He loves you. Peter legitimately loved Jesus. But his denial stood in the way. The thing that would keep Peter from the rest of his life from entering, entering into the fullness of the joy of the resurrection was his denial. So Jesus went after that specifically. There might be some of you here today who would love nothing more than to be accepted by God and have your life set to rights, to know you're forgiven, but you just can't look him in the eye. Well, Jesus is calling you out right now and he's asking, do you love me? You've got things nobody knows about. And you think, yeah, that sounds great, Tyler, and I can never explain it to you or to her or to him. But you don't know what I've done. You don't know the abortion that I've had. You don't know the drugs that I've done. You don't know what I did with that weapon. Nobody found out but me. Tyler, I looked at pornography this morning. And, and you're going to come and tell me to come to... I can't. Here's the good news for Peter and for you. Jesus is not just trying to wring a confession out of you. He's not like the police officer with a light in your face saying, we know you did it, so you better start talking. He wants to bring restoration to you. And you say, I want to be restored, but I don't want to talk about that. That is the doorway to that. 
Look at what Peter is going to hear from the Lord. He acknowledged it. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And this kind of unspoken conversation between the two of them is, I'm sorry, Lord. I denied you, but you know I didn't mean I didn't want to. I'm so sorry. I'm so ashamed of myself. Well, what is Jesus going to tell him? In verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. The first thing Jesus had said to him. Three times Jesus told him, take care of my sheep. Tend my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. I don't know if there's much substantial difference between what those different statements. He's just saying, take care of my sheep. He's telling Peter, I still want you to be my shepherd. And he prophesies what's going to happen at the end of Peter's life. He's telling him, this is how your life is going to end, which implies what? You are indeed going to walk the path that I have outlined for you. I'm not giving up on you. I'm not quitting on you. We're still doing this. Peter was crucified. That's how he died. And when he came to be crucified, he said, I'm not worthy to die the same way as my Lord. So they turned the cross upside down and they crucified Peter that way. After they crucified his wife right in front of him, by the way. Is that a tragic story? Well, in one sense it is, but in another sense, what is it? It is Peter ending his life in imitation of the Lord Jesus, which at this point sounded like an impossible dream to him. It's too late for me. Jesus goes, Peter, your life is going to end in a way that you're not expecting and you don't want, but it's going to come at the end of a life of you feeding my sheep because I'm not done with you, Peter. Three times, Jesus covered over that denial, acknowledging that unspoken acknowledgement, I denied you, Jesus, and I'm sorry. He goes, I'm not worried about the denial. Feed my sheep. Lord, I, I, I cursed at this little girl, and I told her, I didn't know who you were. He says, I don't care about that. Feed my sheep. They all cornered me, and I swore, but I invoked a curse upon myself, Jesus. He goes, I've taken every curse for you on the cross. Feed my sheep and follow me. Can you imagine the release that Peter felt? He was unworthy. He would always be unworthy. You're unworthy. You will always be unworthy. But his grace was enough to cover that and to totally change his life and take his destiny from one of catching fish to one of being a fisher of men and ending his life in glory as Jesus did. Another scoundrel that Jesus saved was Paul the Apostle. And you might even say Saul was worse because Saul was persecuting the church, tearing families apart, dragging them back to Jerusalem where they might be stoned just as Stephen was. But the Lord got hold of his life and saved him too. And Paul wrote later in his life in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, God saved me, the worst of the worst, so that anybody else that thought they were the worst of the worst could know that salvation was available. The church is filled with rotten people who have been made new by the love of the risen Jesus. 
They're in this room right here. You think, I can't be saved, I've done too much. You most certainly have not. What about John Newton? John Newton was a slave ship captain. Is there anything worse on our list of bad things than that? But at the end of his life, he becomes saved. God uses him to break the chain of, of uh, the slave trade in the world. And he says this, two things I've learned in my life. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. And he wrote a song called Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. Are you a wretch here today? You might say, yeah, that about sums it up. Well, if he can save that wretch, and Paul the wretch, and Peter the wretch, and Tyler Warner the wretch, he can save you. Some of y'all are fishing. You're going back. You're trying to hide. You're trying to say, let me just go back, live a quiet life, and hope that Jesus will just leave me alone. Hoping God never shows up. Well, guess what? God is here today. God is breaking into your life. He's standing on the beach saying, children, have you caught anything? And you're like, no, I haven't. This life is going nowhere and earning nothing. I thought it was going to be something. I thought it was going to be great. I never thought I would do that thing or be this person. And yet here I am and there's nothing to show for it. He's calling out to you. Why not face up to your sin? Leave it behind and be restored and get a new destiny that's going to last forever. You're fishing, but you'll never be satisfied with fishing because you were meant to be more than that. Peter could never be satisfied with fishing. He was to be a fisher of men. You'll never be satisfied with your life because your life is meant for more. Great men are not satisfied with regular lives because they're called to be great. They've got it in them. Well, you don't have it in you, but Christ has placed it in you. If you're wondering, why don't, why don't these things satisfy like they used to? Why, why does it not get me high like it used to? Why does it not feel like it used to? Where is, I'm chasing that feeling. I can't find it. I play all the songs and I drink all the same things and I talk to all the same people, but it is not that same joy anymore because it was never joy. It was just the fleeting pleasures of the moment. But you're meant for something greater than that. And Christ has it for you here today. Your sin is great, but Jesus took that sin down into the grave, left it there, and then came back for you. <laughs> you might say, well, what do I do then? What do I got to do about this? It's not complicated. You've got to admit your sin like Peter did. Face up. You got to be honest, man. Don't try to do this halfway thing. You don't you gotta be honest with me? Fine. Be honest with God. He already knows. He already sees all that. What are you going to hide it from him? You ever try to get your two-year-old child to tell you the truth? It's exasperating because they're not good liars. Neither are you. You're not fooling anybody. Or if you are, you're not fooling Jesus. So you admit it. And then you've got to renounce it. You say, I don't want to talk about it. I hate it so much. Then just put it out there and say, Jesus, I don't want this anymore. I hate and despise what I did and I don't want to live that way anymore. That's repentance. But what's the next step? You get up and follow Jesus because there is no forgiveness to be found anywhere else. This is not just therapeutic confession. Some people do that, by the way. They come to church and every time there's a prayer meeting, they want to air out some terrible, grievous, horrible sin they did so that they'll feel better about saying it and then leave. It's not enough to do that. You've got to come to Jesus and say, Lord, I believe you rose from the dead. You're my king and I'm going to live your way from now on. It's not that hard. Say, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to start following Jesus. See, I've tried that and it didn't work. But what's going to happen, guys? 
The Lord Jesus is going to accept your word. He's going to send his Holy Spirit into your heart. He's going to start to change you from the inside out. It's going to start small, but you're going to notice the first thing is all those old desires are going to dry up. You're not even going to get the slightest bit of enjoyment out of your sin any longer. And then a bunch of little things are just going to fall away. And then what's going to happen is like when you're, when you're trying to chip something away, like chip away a big rock and all the little pieces come and then finally crack, the big piece falls off. And you go, hey man, that's gone. That feels good. And you're going to start to see your mouth is going to get cleaned up and your thoughts are going to get cleaned up and you're not going to yell at people like you used to and you're not going to want to get high like you used to. And then the time that you mess up, you're going to feel so bad about it. You go, well, I'm not doing that ever again. And your whole life is going to be transformed. Get up and follow Jesus. That's what Jesus told him. Follow me. Live like me. Listen to me and I'll change your whole life, Peter. Salvation is a gift received through faith. I don't want your money. I don't even need you to come to this church. I want to see you in heaven someday. That's what Jesus has for you. Some of y'all need faith today. You have faith that Jesus rose from the dead, but you don't have faith that Jesus could save you. If Jesus can save me and everybody else in this room and everybody that we're going to be celebrating in heaven with forever, he can save you. You are not that messed up. Now, you are that messed up, but is there anything that's greater than the shed blood of Jesus on the cross? Is your sin greater than Paul's sin? Is your sin greater than John Newton's sin? Like, well, at least I didn't do that. Yeah. And if he saved a wretch like him, he can save you too. Romans 10 tells us what to do. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, everybody loves to make fun of the church on this one. Oh, so you're saying, all I got to do is I accept Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, and now I can do whatever I want? No, what do you also have to do? Believe in your heart. And belief is a decision. You know that, don't you? Well, I just need more evidence. You can play that game your whole life. You have enough evidence to believe and then the rest of it will start to fall into place. No life is ruined beyond repair. None. For the risen Lord is ready to restore all who run to receive restoration. He's standing here today through me saying, hey, let's fix this mess. Come to me. Ask for forgiveness. I'll give it to you. And then let's change your life. You don't like living this way anyway. Are you too proud? I hope you're not too proud. Well, I've kind of... I've kind of made a fool of myself to the things I've said about religion. And if I were to all of a sudden get saved, people would laugh at me. Well, maybe you deserve to be laughed at the way you've acted. How about that? Was Jesus mocked on the cross for you? Yeah, he was. He was beaten. He was flogged. He was crucified for you. I think you can take a little bit of shame from people that are just as lost as you are. And also, you'll be surprised that when you turn around, other people start to turn around too because of you. The devil loves to convince us that we're good for nothing more than fish. That's all Peter was hearing from, this, from Satan. You're just a fisherman. What do you think you were trying to do? What do you think you were going to be the rock that Jesus was going to use? You're a fisherman. You're not even a good fisherman. You're a loudmouth and a braggart. What about your wife back home? What about your mother-in-law? What are you going to do for them? You're just a fisherman, Peter. Just live with it. But Jesus said, man, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Some of you here today, you're good for nothing more than what you're doing now. But Jesus has done everything necessary to change your destiny. Don't miss it today. I think, well, who could ever accept me? I'll accept you. 
We'll accept you. And if somebody else won't accept you, Jesus will. And if you're sitting here and saying, I don't know if I have enough faith to accept somebody else. Well, guess what? There's grace for you too. That's what this place is. It's a place of broken people that have found Jesus and are slowly but surely getting put back together again. That's why we celebrate the resurrection, not just as the great miracle, but as our miracle. Miracle that changed my life because Christ is risen indeed.